0: Well, indeed to the British crown that has never lawfully existed because all a monarchy, the, the rule of one over many, is a big illusion, a big lie. And every pope and king is an affront to reason and a blasphemous denial of the law and dignity of God and mankind. Welcome, this is Here We Stand, and I'm your host, Kevin Anand, Eagle Strong Voice. It's May 7th, 2023, and this is the voice of the Sovereign Republic of Canada which is a new nation arising on the bones of the criminally convicted Crown of England and its puppet Canadian government and churches. Well, folks, the age-old farce of a clown wearing a crown played out again this weekend in London, England, when a convicted child killer named Anglican Archbishop Justin Welby pretended to make an idiot named Charlie Windsor into something called a king. The ridiculous spectacle reminded me of the words of Oliver Cromwell, in 1649, after the people of England chopped off the head of another King Charles and established a republic in England. Cromwell declared, Christ, not man, is king. And that same month, in March 1649, Parliament passed a law abolishing forever the British monarchy. With these words, the Commons of England assembled in Parliament declare that the people under God are the origin of all just power and have the supreme authority of the nation. Whatever is enacted and declared law by the commons has the force of law, and all the people are included thereby with or without the consent of the king. For it is clear by scripture and the laws that monarchs are repugnant and opposed to divine law. Kings are man's creation, not God's, and they blaspheme the law by which God alone is man's sovereign. stand on judgment of the law. For be you ever so high, you are not above the law. And that was continued in one of the things that they quoted in the trial of King Charles before he was executed. And that's Psalm 149, where it says in the Bible, where it says, "Let the chosen be joyful in glory. Let the high judgments of the Lord be in their mouths, and God's sword be in their hands, to execute justice against the rulers, and to bind their kings in chains and their nobles with fetters of iron." so that they may execute upon them the judgment that is from God. That is the honor given to God's chosen ones. Well, now that the King Charlie, who became headless in 1649, has a namesake, Charles III, Charles Windsor, now that he's become the formal head of the dummy corporation known as the Church and Crown of England, he can and must be judged and constrained for he bears legal fiduciary responsibility for the crimes of that church and state, including their systematic massacre of over 60,000 indigenous children in Canada. And that crime includes the recent assassination just last year of 10 Cree native people in Melfort, Saskatchewan to secure their land for the crown owned Rio Tinto Diamond Mining Company. But it doesn't stop there. Because according to the sworn affidavits of two former Crown security officials in England, in February 2011, Charles Windsor was implicated in the issuing of a kill order against my friend William Coombs just before William was to testify about his witnessing of Queen Elizabeth's abduction of 10 children from the Kamloops Catholic death camp in October 1964. For these and other crimes, Charles Windsor has been publicly indicted under international law last year and summoned to appear before the next session of the International Commonwealth Court of Justice that will convene this fall across Canada and in London and Brussels. And if Charles fails to re- reply or appear, he has thereby admitted to his guilt under the law and can be legally arrested. And that's what we call upon all crime officials to do, to assist us in enforcing that Law. Well, naturally, this whole mess of official corruption and murder is continually fogged and sweetened by the murderers themselves. And what better way to do that than through an officious religious ceremony and con job in Westminster Cathedral designed to convince people that one stupid parasite is their ruler now, just because his mummy pretended to be too? But the irony is that such an enormous lie and pretense is a sign of the weakness of their system in the face of the massive evidence of its guilt. And so, Listen, folks, ultimately what matters isn't the parasites and their obsolete system. What matters now is that the free people of Canada and England and every other nation reclaim their minds and the law, remember their history, dump the convicted heads of church and state, and establish their own sovereign republics that can clean out our collective legacy of institutionalized criminality and genocide. Learning how to do that and making it happen is the purpose of this program every week and our republics around the world. And the faces and the memory of 60,000 slaughtered children are our best guide and rem- reminder of that epic and truly godly purpose. You can learn more about all of this not only here every week but at republicofkanata.org and murderbydecree.com. Well, today on our show we're going to be looking at how we bring about this revolution by first remembering our own history, a history we have been robbed of. Only by remembering the truth can we remember this remove the censorship and complicity we impose on ourselves. And that was the theme of a talk I recently gave at a global conference called Ending Censorship and Defending Free Speech, a talk with, that we're going to hear today on our show. Today's show and those that follow during May and June are going to help all of us prepare for the historic 25th anniversary of the first tribunal into crimes of genocide by Canadian church and state that a few of us convened in Vancouver on June 12, 1998. That event began Campaign that eventually exposed genocide in Canada, deposed two popes, and began the global common law revolution. And that also raised up our Republic of Canada after the British Crown was lawfully disestablished by its conviction for genocide in February 2013. Well, it's a tribunal I have very strong memories of, very fond memories of, because fond, you might say, why fond when you were attacked subsequently? Well, it's because I learned very quickly that the long arm of state censorship reaches out and tries to stop us right at the beginning. It reached out that day and literally grabbed me by the throat and threatened to kill me. The arm belonged to a big and nasty aboriginal goon named Dean Wilson, who forced me into a corner and said that Chief Ed John would would have me killed if I kept looking into dead residential school children. And of course, for those of you who don't know, Ed John is a prominent government native public. runs the Drug and Trafficking Network in northern BC, and now in the pay of China, is personally implicated in the regular deaths and disappearance of native families all over the north to make the oil and gas secure for Beijing. Well, when your enemy threatens to kill you or sue you, it means they're scared of you, and their threats are designed to scare you off. But when you ignore their threats and keep going, as we did, their power vanishes because it's based on your fear. That's one of the lessons I'll be discussing today in the presentation you're going to hear, that I did at the Global Free Speech Conference we broadcast just last month? Because we're censors, the one in our own heads. Nowadays, we've lawfully been empowered to seize these buildings, the property and wealth, and and churches of the United Church, the Anglican, and the Roman Catholic churches, which have all been evicted and banished from our lands, including by Chief Kiamalano, the traditional Sam on the West Coast. But it's only our fear that's holding us back from doing that, and we can. Come that fear in practice and together, through right action, as William Coombs and so many others have shown us. And so we're carrying on their legacy. Starting on June 12th and beyond, we'll be holding direct actions, teach-ins, and training to shut down these criminal churches and their accomplices and masters in Rome, Ottawa, Beijing, and London. To take part in that, write to us, Republic National Council at protelmail.com and we'll plug you into the workshops, the teach-ins, and the direct actions in your neighbourhoods. Because if you allow these crimes to continue and blow back on all of us, as they're doing now through the COVID police state, you have only yourselves to blame. And the simple way to end all illusion and tyranny, including of the crown and church, is to renounce your allegiance. And this is a final message I want to make before you hear this uh, broadcast today. A message to the people of Kanata. And that is you can stop this crime in its tracks by renouncing allegiance to king charles and his descendants because that's the only oath taken by the police the members of parliament the government officials the judges the soldiers of canada you take an oath of allegiance not to the people or a constitution or the law you take it to one man that idiot in london and his descendants in other words they're all serving a foreign monarch one man rather than the people That's an act of treason. And anyone who takes an oath or even votes in Canada for that system is committing treason. Well, you can renounce all of that by taking the oath to the Republic of Canada. And that can be found at, of course, our website, republicofcanada.org. You'll see there a card. You fill it out. It says, I, so-and-so, hereby sever all allegiance to the monarch and crown of England and the government of Canada. I solemnly pledge my citizenship to the Republic of Canada and to its laws and its constitution. I pledge to actively establish and defend the Republic and to stand in solidarity with and defend all those who take this pledge." And on the other side, it says, "...the bearer of this card is a duly sworn citizen of the Republic of Canada. He or she is entitled to all of the liberties of a sovereign citizen of the Republic, according to its laws and constitution." stand within his protective national jurisdiction and I'll tell you how this works I've used this card numerous times I show it to the police in Canada they always back down and one of the reasons they back down during our church
1: occupations is because we not only use that but the lawful order by from his territory in what's now Vancouver
0: Back. They didn't interfere with our protests because we had the law and a new kind of citizenship on our side. We're no longer citizens of the criminal regime called Canada. We're citizens of a new nation. It's a question of acting on that now. Something becomes real when you make it real by, by walking away from the system. So that's one thing folks can do. when, After listening to the show today and the leading up to the 25th anniversary of the tribunal that launched all this here's practically what you can do write to republic national council at protonmail.com go to republic take out citizenship form an assembly in your community 12 or more people you become a governing assembly of the new republic and enforce your own laws that's the force that, bring, that makes change not looking to the old corrupt system the convicted genocidal system with the blood of generals on their hands It's time to walk away from that system entirely, folks. So you're about to hear now the broadcast I did on censorship and free speech, and the real source of it is overcoming the censor in your own head. We'll be back again live next week, and if you need to reach me, it's angelfire101 at protonmail.com, murderbydecree.com for all of the evidence. Here's our broadcast from the free speech conference, and stay until then, Next week, stay strong, stay clear. This is Kevin Annett, Eagle Strong Voice. I thank you.
1: Hello, everyone. This is Kevin Annett, Eagle Strong Voice, and I want to thank you for having me here today. I'm going to be speaking about a topic close to home. I guess you could say it's inherently censored. It's unmasking the crime and unmuzzling the truth of our domestic genocide, a quarter century of struggle. First of all, I want to acknowledge and honor my Anglo-Scots Métis ancestors and my adopted Anishinaabek Ojibwe family. I ask for their wisdom and guidance. I want to begin by saying that this is a tale that's impossible to understand because it's so enormous and so monstrous. Even I, who lived through some of it, can't really understand what happened. Any more than can a combat veteran make sense of anything or return to what he thought was normal. The irony of defending free speech is that mere speech can never communicate what really matters. We talk because so much else has failed. Even if censorship didn't exist, the truth wouldn't be spoken because it can't be. It can only be experienced. Everything else is hearsay and babble. So I hope you're lucky enough to hear with your heart some of what I'm going to be sharing today because it's only your heart that will have a clue of what I'm talking about. That said, I am very grateful to be speaking at this event because it's providing a platform for many voices that have been silenced. Not only my own voice, but those like the young girl young indigenous Mohawk girl, whose bones one of these bones these are, and who was murdered in nineteen sixty two by Anglican church staff at the Mohawk Internment Camp at Brantford, Ontario. And also the little children who wore these buttons at the same death camp facility, who as inmates were tortured and died at the hands of priests and staff. Brantford Residential School, where over half the children died. Children like this little girl, Vicki Stewart, beaten to death. Well, the truth of that, their fate, of these fallen children, has been buried under tons of censorship and soil for many years by the Canadian church and state who killed them, because that crime continues today. I also want to recognize the eyewitnesses to these and these crimes who are being silenced by a criminal Canadian church and state. Silenced, beaten up, imprisoned, locked away in psychiatric wards, and murdered because of what they know of the continuing extermination of indigenous people and their children on this continent. Eyewitnesses who were killed, like my friend William Coombs, who saw Queen Elizabeth abduct 10 children from the Kamloops School in October 1964, or bingo Johnny Dawson, who, after helping occupy the criminal churches, was beaten to death by Vancouver police in 2009. The atrocities of the so called Indian residential schools are part of the worst and yet most censored and least known crime in Canadian history. The truth of its genocide is censored because it implicates every level of our society and all of us. And so everyone in our culture has a vested interest in denying and concealing it, even though its effects and impacts are blowing back on us today, on all of us, through the COVID corporate police state. As someone who has fought that concealment of genocide in Canada by exposing and prosecuting those responsible, I've been targeted Canadian church and state, because, like John Brown in 1859, I'm confronting the crimes of my own people. So what I have to say to you today is intensely personal and unsettling. It's a story that has been my life for three decades now. and has cost me everything and everyone I knew and loved, making me an exile in my own country. I've learned the hard way that free speech always comes with a price, namely that we become responsible for the consequences of what our speaking freely unearths, including the hatred and assaults from the powerful criminals who we implicate and threaten. The real question is whether we are willing to assume that responsibility and hold fast to what we know is true and what we have endured, regardless of the cost, or instead remain silent and censor ourselves to fit in with mainstream insanity and criminality, because our free speech can only be suppressed by others we first suppress it in ourselves. Speaking freely is not a right granted to us, but it only exists when we practice it. And so the only people who curtail that freedom of speech is we ourselves. Likewise, censorship is something we do to ourselves long before a gag is ever placed over us. It's what we do to ourselves to avoid facing risks or looking at disquieting truths, like our homegrown crimes against humanity. This story began for me 30 years ago last July, in the summer of 1992, on the west coast of Canada. It occurred at a lumber mill town called Port Alberni. At the time, I was a newly ordained minister in the United Church of Canada, which, along with the Catholics and the Anglicans, killed off more than 60,000 indigenous children in the misnamed Indian residential schools. But like any of us, I was blind to the crime that I had been raised in and was part of. In that summer of 1992, I was 36 years old and a blithely married man with two daughters, Eleanor and Claire. Eleanor, Eleanor, my youngest child, was born just a week before I arrived to take up my duties at St. Andrew's United Church, where I was unanimously chosen by its church board to rebuild their dying congregation of some 20 people. Within a few months, I had tripled the size of my congregation by reaching out to the community, including to the local Native people and bringing them into church. I also started up a food bank and visited people in their homes, including the Aboriginals. By doing that, I upset the unspoken local color bar that had always separated whites and natives. Seating native people next to white ones in church had never been done before in the And it lit a fuse. Because many of the native parishioners were victims in the nearby killing zone run by my church, called the Alberni Indian Residential School. And as one of my friends, an old native fisherman, Danny Gus, told me, a week after I had started my job, quote, they killed my best friend in there. They beat him to death for asking for more food. Then I had to help bury him in the hill behind the school. That happened to a lot of the kids in there. And anybody who talks about it gets put in that hill, too. Well, the children had been murdered. Then it had to be reported. So went my naive thinking after I left Danny Gus's home. I heard. I hadn't learned yet that when mass murder is committed in an official and an orthodox way—sorry—when mass murder is committed as an official and authorized act of church and state, it's not considered a crime. The only crime is talking about it. In fact, that's exactly what I was told by a. Uh, top United Church official named Brian Thorpe when he arranged my firing without cause in January 1995. He said, Kevin, we know all about the deaths of those children. The only problem is, he wrote a letter about it. Well, the more I wrote and talked about dead little Indians, the bigger a problem I became for guilty men like Brian Thorpe. But I was still limited by my naive and false assumptions, like the idea that justice was possible in the system that killed children. To give you an example, the very people to whom I reported Danny Gus's story of his murdered friend to were the same Royal Canadian Mounted Police who were complicit in the boy's death, because for generations the Mounties had kidnapped Native children at gunpoint from their homes and brought them in chains to the Indian residential schools. The RCMP were also hired by the churches to hunt down runaway children and bury and conceal the multitudes of them who died. Relying on them... On the Mounties was like asking the serial killer to investigate himself and dig under his own house for graves. So by going to the RCMP with accounts of murdered native kids, I went on the radar of the perpetrators as someone to be watched, especially since I began speaking about the residential school murders from my pulpit, and I opened that pulpit to any native person with a story to tell. By doing that, I lit a bigger fuse. For more witnesses came forward to describe every atrocity considered genocide, International law. From 1889 to 1996, the Catholic, Anglican, and United Churches and the Government of Canada ran over 150 Aboriginal internment camps, deceptively called Indian residential schools, where the annual death rate was double that of Auschwitz, around 40 to 60 percent. Native children as young as four years old were routinely kidnapped, gang raped, murdered. Tortured, used as slave labor, sexually sterilized, and medically experimented on, and used in deadly drug testing experiments by church affiliated pharmaceutical companies like Pfizer, GlaxoSmithKline, and Eli Lilly. In these death camps, it was a routine practice for babies born from the rape of girls by the staff members to be burned alive in the school furnace. An annual death quota of from a third to a half of the children was actually mandated in these camps, whose purpose was to depopulate the local native tribes. And because these crimes were legally sanctioned by the British Crown and Canadian courts, no one has ever been prosecuted for them. And here's some of the examples of what I'm talking about. In the Elkhorn Anglican Residential School, the very first year it opened in 1891, eight of the twelve children are dead or dying because of deliberate exposure to tuberculosis. A report by Dr. Peter Bryce showing the 50% death rate published in 1907 and actually reported on the front pages of the Ottawa Citizen newspaper. A record showing children who received painkiller and those who did not receive painkiller the ones who didn't get painkiller when they were operated on by dentists were the ones who were being punished. A school electric chair used to punish and sometimes kill children. And photographic proof of the evidence of the deliberate spreading of tuberculosis among native children who are then left to die untreated. The children with bandages on their heads have opened tubercular sores sitting next to children who are healthy. That's at the Sarsi Anglican School in Alberta in 1912. And finally the sterilization of native children performed by this man, Dr. George Darby, at the Bella Bella United Church Hospital, all during the 1940s up to the 1970s. All of this contained online at MurderByDecree.com in my book, Murder by Decree, written as a counter-report to the government and church cover-up known as the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Well, all of these facts of genocide were Confirmed by eyewitnesses and documents. Actually by over 300 eyewitnesses. And it's interesting because the Nuremberg trial in 1946 used only 32 eyewitnesses. We had 10 times that number. And yet our stories continually blocked out of the Canadian media. These uh, eyewitnesses and documents that I unearthed after I was fired without cause by the United Church and then defrocked with the due process in 1997, all of this again, barred from any of the mainstream academia or news. Like I say, all of this story and evidence can be found online at MurderByDecree.com. While the genocide-free speech movement that I began in Port O'Byrne encouraged other Native eyewitnesses to come forward to describe not only past crimes, but the present-day trafficking and murder of Native children across Canada, especially on the West Coast, and especially today at the hands of China and its oil and gas companies, my creation of a platform for eyewitnesses to our homegrown Holocaust sparked a firestorm across Canada that it took years for Christian and corporate Canada to stamp out. Almost immediately I reaped the consequences of speaking out. My wife Anne was paid by United Church lawyers to divorce me and to take my children away from me, which happened during 1996. And she began that soon after my dismissal at the behest of the church and with church money. I was fired without cause, publicly defrocked, blacklisted, and made penniless. My friends and family, my children, my livelihood, even my ability to earn a living, were all stripped away in less than a year, as always happens in any coordinated takedown of an inconvenient whistleblower. None of these attacks stopped me. They made me even more determined to expose the high crimes that I had stumbled over. When those powers saw that I wasn't stopping, it was stepping on even bigger toes, like timber, oil, and gas companies that profit from stolen native land and murdered native children. When that occurred, the Mounties, the government, and the churches launched a massive black ops campaign against me and our movement that continues today. In the words of one of the people who ran that black ops against us, RCP Inspector Peter Montague in Vancouver, quote, Take down Annette, and you take down the issue. Wherever I tried to speak, the event was shut down and people dropped away. Native eyewitnesses vanished or ended up dead. My efforts to professionally retrain and find new employment were blocked. My books and evidence are still banned from libraries and colleges in Canada, and scholars who try giving me a platform are regularly reprimanded. Living through that blacklisting process is exactly like being a banned person in apartheid South Africa, or a victim of the Nazi's regime of Nacht und Nebel, or Night and Fog. Because once you're targeted, the reign of terror against you never ends. It just varies in intensity, depending on how much public exposure you get and how successful you are. And yet, after those assaults began against me, they boosted my credibility in the Native world. More death camp survivors came forward when they saw my example, and they joined our campaign and gave us the strength to escalate our fight to a national, eventually to an international level. These are some of the people who took part in that, native survivors of the death camps at our first Aboriginal Holocaust Awareness Day, April 15, 2005, in Vancouver. <laughs> the truth is, like the native people themselves, everything in my life had been shattered at that point, and so I had nothing to lose by taking up this fight. I was free to focus on the struggle and fight unrelentingly, but only after I had given up the illusion that there was such a thing as a return to a so-called normal life. After making the usual mistakes caused by naivety and ignorance of what we were up against, I learned that our campaign had to become its own compass and media, and had to keep hold of the narrative in the face of massive institutionalized censorship. Building on that understanding, our movement of mostly poor Native people staged high-profile conferences and protests and occupations at the, the guilty Catholic, Anglican, and United Churches. We not only publicly documented the crimes with hundreds of our witnesses, but we made such a huge stink that even the government allied corporate media had to eventually respond, if only to put their own spin on the issue. Our campaign was the first one in Canada to publish the hard evidence of genocide in the Indian residential schools and hospitals, and it also organized the first and only independent tribunal into those crimes in June 1998 in Vancouver. That tribunal forced an official acknowledgement of some of the crimes for the first time, and it caused the Canadian government to begin reparation programs due to some of the survivors, the ones who agreed not to sue the churches and government, otherwise known as hush money. Our campaign was so persistent that we even forced the government of Canada to issue a pseudo-apology for the residential school death camps in July 2008, and out of that stage a huge controlled cover-up, known falsely as the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, or TRC. Despite the eventual shutdown of the truth caused by that big spin operation, our campaign spilled over to Europe, after survivors of Catholic Church atrocities in Ireland heard about our work and invited me to come and speak there. And together, in June 2010, we launched the International Tribunal of Crimes of Church and State that went on to criminally prosecute the Vatican and Crown of England for genocide and to force the resignation of Pope Benedict and three Catholic cardinals during 2013. Well, all these victories happened because we never stopped speaking the undivided truth loudly and constantly in the face of the criminals and massive censorship, denial, threats, and assaults and the personal cost was enormous. Seven of our ten people, who were most prominent in our campaign, were killed because of our work, all of them native survivors of the Christian death counts that our Holocaust-denying culture still call Indian residential schools. That inevitable backlash and cover-up that followed our victories eventually caused a huge rewriting of history and a whitewashing of the truth that we had surfaced at such enormous cost. I first experienced the brutality of that cover-up early in our campaign. On the opening day of our tribunal on June 12, 1998, a large man named Dean Wilson grabbed me by the neck and forced me into a corner. He threatened to kill me if I didn't stop our investigation. That particular goon, and there were many of them, worked for a government Native puppet chief called Ed John, who controls all of the drug and child trafficking that's rife in northern British Columbia and on the reservations there. When I didn't heed Ed John's warning, the attacks worsened. Over the years that followed, I was beaten up, had my ribs and teeth broken, received late night death threat phone calls, and found bullets, ex- excrement, and dead animals on my front doorstep, had my car tires routinely slashed, and my home broken into. My records and laptops were stolen. I was regularly arrested and held without charges. I was constantly gang-stalked and followed, I saw my friends on eyewitnesses killed, and I endured a quarter century of public blacklisting that stopped me from having an income or a home, giving public talks, or even renting rooms for events. Of course, all of that was mild compared to the crimes committed against children and the aboriginal people who were brave enough to get involved in our campaign. If I had been Native, I wouldn't have survived in our work barely even a year. I've I've relied on the fact that I'm white and well-known to give me and others protection, especially as our campaign escalated. Our best protection was always to remain persistent, public, and very vocal, and to confront the child killers on their own turf, which we did more and more as we occupied churches and government offices. Like it says in the art of War, when you establish the terrain of battle, your enemy has to respond in your terms, no matter how big they are. And that's what happened. Our unrelenting, grassroots actions forced Canada to address and even acknowledge its own genocide, but not for years, not until a lot of pressure was brought to bear on them. But naturally, since the guilty were still in charge, they never faced any consequences. Nobody ever went to jail or even trial for the proven torture and murder of children. The killers legally exonerated themselves and censored the truth, including by issuing a false self-serving narrative of the death camps and their massacre of over 60,000 children. In truth, these pitiful actions were a sign of the fear and the panic that we had caused at the highest level of church and state in Canada. The fact that the censorship and cover-up of this group crime was so blatant and obvious only helped our campaign even more. One example of this was in the spring of 2007, after our church occupation spread nationally, and the media confirmed what we had been proving for over a decade that more than half of the residential school children had died while incarcerated therein. An example of this, how the news first broke over a hundred years ago, was this article from the Ottawa Citizen, November 15, 1907, in an article about so-called White Plague, which describes a report of a government medical inspector, Dr. Peter Bryce, who documented... Uh, an official death rate in the death camps, the Indian residential school, is of between 25% and 69%. He claimed that this enormous mortality was caused by a regular church practice of taking healthy children and putting them in the same ward of children being dying of tuberculosis and smallpox and then never treating any of them. In other words, children were being systematically killed off by germ warfare as a matter of deliberate policy. Well, that official eyewitness account of planned genocide by Canadian church and state was shoved down the memory hole for over a century after that article, but in response to our church occupations, and long after we had started publishing Dr. Peter Bryce's report, on April twenty-fourth, two 2007, the national newspaper The Globe and Mail finally disclosed it in an article entitled, Children Died in Droves Despite Warnings to Ottawa, in which they cite the 69% death rate in the death camps. But by the time the article hit the internet, guess what happened? The words in droves had been censored out, and any reference to mass graves of children or our campaign had also vanished from the article. Official sanitation had begun. Well, that fogging that happened in such a blatant way got a help from the victims themselves, and the state puppet native organization called the Assembly of First Nations. Using a standard divide and conquer method, the government issued bribe and hush money to native puppet chiefs and to those death camp survivors who wouldn't sue the churches. A fund called the Aboriginal Healing Fund. Because money heals everything, right? Survivors could get a few thousand dollars for a lifetime of ruination, but only if they agreed not to sue the churches and government and to legally indemnify them and absolve them of all wrongdoing. Along with that cheap bribe went a permanent gag order that prevented the survivors from speaking about what had happened to them. And of course that gag order was the whole point of the government hush money program. This official whitewash continued even more farcically when in the summer of 2008 the Canadian government began their own in-house cover-up called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, as I mentioned, the TRC. And that happened shortly after, actually within a month after we had publicly announced that we were suing Canada and its churches in international courts for crimes against humanity. The TRC was a farce from start to finish, since it was set up by the very same government and churches that had run the residential school death camps, exactly like a serial killer appointing his own judge and jury. The TRC's mandate prohibited it from holding formal hearings, issuing subpoenas, Naming names or naming crimes, laying criminal charges, or allowing anything it had uncovered to be used in a court of law. It even allowed the guilty churches that had killed so many children six months to censor and conceal their own records. Sound like a good process to you? Well, naturally, this illegality was exactly what the guilty church and state needed to fog their crimes and protect their bank accounts. The $68 million official cover-up was falsely portrayed by a compliant world media as a legitimate investigation into the Indian residential schools, rather than than the massive obstruction of justice and criminal conspiracy that it was. Whenever we tried to point that out to the press, including the U.S. media, we were completely ignored. The big official lie is the only game in town. Of course, none of that's surprising. It's what genocidal regimes do to minimize and normalize and then decriminalize, and fin- finally reconceptualize their homegrown crimes against humanity. The winners not only rewrite history, but exonerate themselves and set the terms of so-called justice, using a false language designed to dissimulate and fog atrocities and legal liability. Child murder and torture becomes mere abuse. The consequences are not jail terms, but financial compensation on the terms of the killers themselves. The entire systemic crime is whitewashed so completely that it's erased from public memory. And the erasure itself is erased. Canada's false and unwarranted international image as a humanitarian nation of nice people has only helped this process of institutionalized censorship. This massive dissimulation is designed to rewrite the past and allow the same crimes to continue today, like on the West Coast, where China is leading the extermination of remnant indigenous tribes whose lands contain the oil, gas, minerals, and water being rapidly bought up by Beijing, thanks to a compliant Trudeau government. In addition, many of the drugs and methods used by today's COVID police state were first developed by Pfizer and lethally tested on Indian residential school children and in Indian hospitals across Canada. Those clinical records were officially sealed by the Canadian government in the fall of 1999, shortly after we began publishing them. Well, the fact that our movement identified and spotlighted that link between yesterday and today's genocide no doubt accounts for the continued attacks on our efforts by the state and its corporate and church allies. Regardless, our movement exposed the vulnerability of the so-called rulers and demonstrated how possible it is for people with nothing to shake their thrones and topple a few of the rulers. All those golden moments are rare and fleeting and are the result of constant sacrifice and struggle. And very few of those who take on Goliath ever survive the effort. My indigenous friends and comrades, Bingo Dawson, William Coombs, Ricky Lavallee, Ron Barber, Harriet Nahani, Harry Wilson, and Louis Daniels, were all killed after confronting and occupying the genocidal Catholic, Anglican, and United Church of Canada. So the question is, was their sacrifice worthwhile? when the perpetrators of the Canadian Holocaust have gotten away with their atrocity and even made themselves look good in the process. Well, one of the ways I've navigated my own trauma and grief has been by keeping the long-term view that shows that no one escapes the consequences of their actions. The ease with which Christian Canada exterminated, concealed, and then absolved itself of the mass murder of children has made it much easier for that crime to continue today through the COVID tyranny that's now engulfing everyone. The recent police state measures are nothing new. Along with COVID bioweapons, experimental drugs, and mind control techniques, tyranny and censorship was first tried out and perfected in the Indian schools and hospitals that employed many so-called ex-Nazi scientists, brought to Canada after 1946 through the infamous Project Paperclip program. Under Canada's Apartheid Indian Act that reduces Native people to stateless non-citizens, Aboriginal people have had injections forced in them under the threat of imprisonment since the year 1874. Aboriginal children have always been seized at any time by cops and priests. Natives have had to carry special permits to leave the reservations, and are routinely killed with impunity by Canadian police since they're not citizens with legal rights, but rather just permanent wards of the Crown. Every Canadian has paid for included in these crimes from the beginning, without a word of protest, just like Americans and Europeans have done towards indigenous people in their nations. Then why are we so surprised that the monster is now turning on the rest of us? What we do to all we others always blows back on us. That's more than poetic justice; it's a law of return, and so we're all on the Indian Reservation now, and we have no one to blame for that but ourselves. As I've shown by the Canadian example, when mass murder com- committed by an entire nation, when it's committed by an entire people, it requires a corresponding political tyranny and a sterile, mental conformity. Genocidal regimes must rely on a strict curtailment of free speech and thought, and rigorous state censorship to maintain and secure its domestic crimes against humanity. Anyone raised in these regimes is conditioned to see their genocide as not genocide at all. And so the details of their crime never enter political, media, or scholarly discourse, or even enters our personal mental discourse. Anyone who challenges this see-not-our-own-evil narrative by their own people becomes not only an instant pariah, but an acceptable walking target. Trust me, I know. It's the basic fact that when a nation committed crime. It's not a crime. The only crime is talking about it. In that light, there's no such thing as free speech on this continent regarding our homegrown genocide, and not only because of its rigorous official censoring. Even before the evidence of the Indian residential school massacre was suppressed by church and state after our 1998 tribunal, few people and fewer academics and media ever showed any interest in these dead children, because the issue struck much too close to home. The censor in the heads of mainstream North Americans was hard at work long before the official whitewash occurred of our domestic war crimes. In that regard, I want to speak briefly about one of the worst perpetrators of self-censorship and genocide denial in Canada, the academic community. Scholars are as responsible as the killers themselves of the criminal cover-up of the residential school holocaust, something I have experienced personally and dramatically time and again. In September 1995, after the United Church fired me without cause and prevented me from running work as minister, I enrolled at the University of British Columbia, where I obtained my academic degrees in anthropology and political science and theology. I had a long history there. I planned to write my doctoral thesis on the history of Church and led genocide on the West Coast. But the long arm of the United Church quickly sabotaged all that by blocking my academic funding and smearing me in my educational studies department. I was the first doctoral student in its history to have first-class marks and yet not receive any funding, thanks to a faculty member named Murray Elliott, who was also uh, one of the United Church officials, who at that moment was organizing my defrocking. As a result, I couldn't pay my tuition and had to drop out. And there ended yet another livelihood for me and another platform for the truth. Well, that sabotage at the University of British Columbia continued down the years. Early in 2003, I was invited by a UBC professor named Richard Fredericks to give five lectures to his sociology class about my work and about crimes against humanity in Canada. But the day after I had given my first very well-received lecture, Richard called me up and in a worried tone said he couldn't have me come back. He eventually told me that the same United Church lawyer who arranged my firing and divorce, John Jessamine, had phoned UBC President Martha Piper and threatened to sue UBC if I was allowed to speak again on campus. Richard Fredericks was then ordered to bar me from lecturing and remove my book hidden from history from his curriculum. And he was then placed on suspension and eventually forced out of UBC. Well, that same academic censorship is the norm on every campus in Canada, Early in 1975, the UBC Library and its national lending system had acquired all of the Peter Bryce evidence of massive deaths in residential schools, but not a single scholar ever researched or published or lectured about any of them for over 20 years until I did in 1996, and despite the vindication of what I uncovered, since 2003, every invitation to lecture that I've ever received from students and teachers has quickly been withdrawn a cloud of silence, including at the prestigious Oxford Debating Society in England in 2016. Unfortunately, the same self-censorship is equally present among Aboriginal refugees from the Canadian Holocaust, because as I have continually observed among them, speaking the truth freely of what happened to them is frowned upon by the residential school survivors, whose silence is the way they avoid getting killed or jailed. Whenever your average aboriginal death camp survivor speaks, their mouths open, and the voice of their oppressors is heard, because they haven't recovered their own thoughts. They say, I was abused. They don't say, I had my teeth pulled out without painkillers and was tortured with an electric cattle prod. We all falsely assume that we own our own words, when in fact, we're just a reiterating somebody else. With all that in mind, you can see how censorship by the state or any power succeeds only if we first suppress ourselves, which means being so blind to what we're part of, we don't know censorship is happening, but we can't see it when more of it is coming our way. When the Canadian and American governments in the Vatican claim that hardly any children died in Indian residential schools, and we believe them or don't challenge them, it's not only because we don't know the truth, it's because we don't want to know. For over a century, the stench of burning bodies wafted from all the more than 150 aboriginal death camps across Canada, because they continually incinerated the piles of dead children there to get rid of the evidence. The Canadians, like Germans under Hitler, claimed to have smelled nothing and known nothing of the dead children, even when the truth of their slaughter was emblazoned on the front page of the Ottawa Citizen on November 15, 1907. The first and most powerful censor is always the one in our Head. I mention all this because, as people raised and programmed to conform to a society with a few rule to many, we're all taught to collude in our own oppression. Nothing ever happens to us without our own cooperation. The question is never, why are they doing all these awful things to us? The question is rather, why are we going along with them? Victims think that an omnipresent them is acting on us, like we are an inert mass. Contrarily, people who own themselves know that we are all part of and responsible for the mass psychosis and group crime that we call civilization. We have collectively caused the evils that are striking us. They have emerged from us like a monster we keep in the basement that's broken loose. Such an attitude is the way mature people think, because personal maturity means accepting responsibility for the consequences of one's own actions, and not blaming something or someone else for them. I was made to do it. Well, M- mature people don't waste their time looking vicariously to others, like governments, courts, or some political guru, to save them from the consequences of themselves. Mature people know that we ourselves have to establish our own justice. But first, by knowing ourselves and standing under the judgment, we so easily level at all those bad people who are attacking poor innocent us. My mixed-blood Métis people of Manitoba have a name for ourselves. It's Oti Pensoak. And that means the people who own themselves. One of the things taught to me as a boy was that nobody can tell another person what to think or do, for we're each responsible for our own actions according to what's best for our people. The idea that we we would censor ourselves or others or not speak our mind in every situation is repugnant and inconceivable to us. And yet, whenever I try living that way in Canada, I've been called insolent, disruptive, anarchistic, and a threat to law and order. Canadians have tried to silence me in our our work on our homegrown genocide because I've held up a mirror to them, and they can't bear what they see. They don't want to hear my voice or that of survivors of their crimes because they're struggling to still the voice of conscience in themselves. That conscience says, yes, we murdered countless children and those who spoke about it, and then we pretended that we didn't. That voice shatters their security and sense of who they are because it requires that they change and lose something. Rather than do that, it's, isn't it better that any number of strangers die in silence? So speak our actions, which are always so much louder than our words. And so when a government or a church or the police prohibit talk or thought about certain matters, they can only succeed if we cooperate with them. And we don't even have to remain silent to cooperate. All we have to do is use their vocabulary. We can say whatever we like as long as our words don't expose crimes at the top or cause things to change. The best way for rulers to guarantee that is not by gagging us, but by conditioning our thought and speech with false, dead words that serve their interests, like vague use of euphemisms, like the words abuse or injustice, which say nothing. Much in the same way, a false substitute narrative of the crime is always created to minimize and decriminalize it. Free speech is never the issue. It's what is being said. That's the issue, and whether it reflects our reality or somebody else's, do we really want free speech without every, uh, without limits? Do we want free speech about everything? Because once you speak something forbidden, you are responsible for all of the consequences, including the shitstorm storm that will descend on you. As has been said, slaves who were given the vote will merely ratify their own slavery. The same is true of free speech. There's no need to censor what we say or write if we aren't seriously challenging anything or are simply parodying the status quo. I began today by saying that this story is very personal and unsettling. I hope that what I've shared has unsettled you to act, because that's the only way things ever change. The truth can't really be spoken, it can only be experienced, especially forbidden truths, which are known first by our hearts because our thinking is held captive to a murderous status quo. That fact struck home for me a dozen years ago when I stood before an open mass grave in Brantford, Ontario, and touch the bone fragments of those children that I showed you earlier, murdered at the Ang- Anglican Mohawk death camp in Brantford, Ontario, that mass grave that we unearthed at the dig in November 2011. And when I saw a memorial erected to a little boy named Charlie, this memorial here, etched in the bricks of the Mohawk death camp there, This little boy, Charlie, was flogged to death in the fall of 1969 by an Anglican priest and future bishop named John Wayne. Bishop Wayne also served as personal chaplain to another child killer named Elizabeth Windsor, alias the Queen of England. My murdered friend, William Coombs, saw her abduct ten children from the Kamloops death camp on October 10, 1964. Seven boys and three girls who were never seen alive again. And after William spoke about it publicly, he was killed by arsenic poisoning. St. Paul's Catholic Hospital, February 26, 2011. None of these murdered innocents can rest, nor can we have any kind of future until we stop the evil that killed them and concealed their remains and exonerated their killers. For we are the hands and the feet and the epitaph of our murdered friends and all those lost children, but only when we recover recover not only our own voices, but their voices as well. This is Kevin Annett, Eagle Strong Voice, MurderbyDecree.com. Thank you.